There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Please, First Corinthians, uh, or First Samuel, whichever one you want to look at. And uh, please stand when you get that. First Samuel, chapter eleven. You can only go up from here. First Samuel chapter eleven, verse one. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we've been able to just gather together in fellowship and had a time of praise and worship. Now we pray, Lord, that we would turn our attention to your word and uh, just pray that we would uh, have good, receptive hearts, Lord. We may learn from your word and that it may make a change in our lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. A New York family bought a uh, ranch out west where they intended to raise cattle. One weekend, some friends visited and asked them if they had named the ranch yet. Well, said the would-be rancher, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. One son liked the flying W, and the other wanted it to be the lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y Ranch. That's great. Can we see your cattle? The friends asked. The city slicker looked down, kicked some dirt, and then finally admitted, unfortunately, none of the cattle survived the branding. (laughs) You know, in life, sometimes compromise can be a deadly thing especially if the compromise has to do with our capitulation to any type of sin. Now, the account that we're going to be looking at this morning was probably never taught in children's church as it contains some rather gruesome features like having the threat of getting your eye gouged out. But when we're dealing with the enemy of our souls, we should never and under no circumstance compromise with the devil. This is a very important principle in the scripture. How important is it? Well, I had initially planned on teaching the entire 11th chapter, and I felt the issue of compromise was so important that I then decided just to teach half the chapter. But I still felt like I needed to devote even more time to it, so I decided that I would just teach verses 1 and 2. 
until finally Friday I felt impressed just to deal with verse 1 and also tie in a real-life example out of the book of Numbers. And I trust and pray that I can be clear and concise in sharing with you the importance and the danger of compromise in the Christian life. Look at verse 1 with me. The Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. I'd like to take verse 1 and unpack it into bite-sized portions for us this morning. First, we are introduced to a man named Nahash. The name Nahash means serpent. It is related to the Hebrew word which refers to the serpent found in Genesis chapter 3. And this man certainly lived down to that name. We can only hope that this was a nickname that he received during the course of his life and was not the name given to him by his parents. But can you imagine that? The midwife hands a little fellow to his parents to see what they would name him. What's he look like to you, sweetie? If he isn't the spitting image of a serpent, I don't know what is. Are you thinking the same thing that I'm thinking? I don't know why my mind goes to things like that, but you should keep your beloved pastor in prayer for such things. (laughs) We are then told that Nahash was an Ammonite. Well, what significance does that have for us this morning? The Ammonites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And the Ammonites, along with the Moabites, were eventually included by the prophets among Israel's traditional enemies. Later on, God himself would level this grisly and morbid indictment against the Ammonites. This is Amos 1.13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. We are dealing with a vicious and vile people who will stop at nothing to advance their cause, even to the point of ripping out babies out of pregnant women. So we can only imagine the terror that must have swept through Jabesh Gilead. Speaking of which, just who are these people of Jabesh Gilead? Well, to get our answer, we need to look at a little historical background. Why would the Ammonites choose to encamp against them? Answering that question will take up the bulk of our time this morning. Jabesh Gilead was a town east of Jordan on the top of one of the green hills of Gilead. It was within the limits of the half-tribe of Manasseh. The half-tribe of Manasseh, along with the tribes of Reuben and Gad, if you will remember, decided to stop short entering the promised land. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 32 for the review that we will need. Numbers chapter 32. I guess the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, why? Why did Reuben, Gad, And the half-tribe of Manasseh decide to stop short of entering into the promised land. 
Numbers 32, verse 1, reveals the first reason. It reads, Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Shebom, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. Excuse me. But did the end of verse 5 actually say what I thought it just said? The Jordan was sort of the official door to the promised land. Did they just say, do not take us over into Jordan? That's kind of like being offered the door to heaven and instead saying, no thanks, I think I'll just stay in Toledo. But notice the word saw in verse 1, as it says, when they saw the land. This is what captured their attention and their devotion. This can be likened to 1 John 2.16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now, it's not that the land is inherently evil, but that their desire was contrary to the will of God. Look back in verse 1 where it says they had an exceedingly large number of livestock. And lo and behold, this place just happens to be suitable for livestock. It just makes plain common sense that this should be where they settle. But I ask you this morning... Is common sense always the life of faith? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And yet these two tribes have reversed the concept, and they are walking by sight instead of by faith. We have two and a half tribes who come to the Jordanian border, and they decide, we don't want to go any further. We like it right here. This is good enough. And yet God had said, I'm going to bring you into a new land. It will be over the Jordan River, not by the side that they're wanting to settle on. I think we can compare this group of people with what we could call border believers. They're a group that are on the edge, but they're on the wrong edge. Likewise, there are Christians who are redeemed out of sin, and yet they live their lives on the border never fully entering into what God has planned for them. And I can tell you from my own painful and personal experience that the most miserable believers are those who are border believers. They are saved, but they're not satisfied. There have been times in my Christian life when I have lived in a lukewarm state, and it's put me in a quandary. Why? Because I no longer had the joy of the Lord, but neither could I fully enjoy the passing pleasures that sin has to offer. 
I had too much of the world to enjoy the Lord and too much of the Lord to enjoy the world. There is no worse place than sitting on a spiritual fence. Just like in our account here, these guys are satisfied with living on the very edge of God's promised land. Now, this seems incredible to believe. Here they are at the border of the long-awaited promise. You would think that their hearts would be stirred, and they would be saying, let's take the land. If God is for us, who can be against us? Instead, Reuben, Gad, and later the half-tribe of Manasseh comes up with this. You know what? This is fine. This is good grazing land. Good for cattle and good for sheep. And wouldn't you know it, we just happen to have lots of cattle and lots of sheep. So if it's all the same to you, we think we'll stay right here. This, again, is a picture of those who are willing to settle for less than God's best for them. Remember earlier, God had said that he was giving to Israel all of the promised land. God wanted to take them across the Jordan and into the land of Canaan. But Gad and Reuben said, we don't want that. We want to stay on this side of the Jordan. It's comfortable here. We just want to stay here and take care of our cattle. Now, that's a real danger for us also this morning. When we get to the point where we ever would say, I don't want to go any further with the Lord than where I am right now. I'm happy and I'm content right where I'm at. That is a very important truth that we all need to hear and consider this morning. God will never take us further in our spiritual life than where we want him to take us. He will never force you to go deeper. He will never force me to go further. Now, he may apply testings through trials and temptations, but he will always allow us to exercise our free will. Yet these guys are content to live on the edge of the promise. Now, the interesting thing is that years before, God had told them that the land he was giving them across the Jordan was a land that flowed with milk and honey. Now, a land that flows with milk means that it's a land that's great for grazing. And it also flowed with honey, which means the land was good for pollination. This would give them all they would desire for vineyards and crops and grazing. But they think that they know what's best for their lives, and it's not living according to the promise. Do you know how that speaks to me this morning? If I'm not living by the power of the Holy Spirit, if I try to do this Christian thing in my own strength, I too will wander aimlessly, often murmuring and complaining. So what do we need? We spoke of it this morning in Sunday school. We need a second baptism. Listen to what the Bible considers to be this group's first baptism. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. 
and all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So they leave the land of sin behind, if you will, and then they're at the Red Sea and they're baptized into Moses, who is a symbol of Christ himself. But they need another baptism. This one in crossing over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, which once again, I believe, is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. This is the difference between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples believed in Jesus, but they were still fearful and unsure of the direction that they have to go. In Acts chapter 2, however, the Spirit comes upon them, and later they turned the world upside down with the good news. Look back at Numbers in verse 31. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so will we do. We ourselves were cross over, armed in the presence of the Lord in the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan. So Moses gave into them, to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Joseph, son of Manasseh, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, the land with its cities, with their territories, the cities of the surrounding land. The two and a half tribes promised Moses that they will fight with their brothers before they would settle on the other side. Now, at first, Moses was opposed to the idea. He thought that these Israelites were attempting to avoid helping their fellow Israelites in the military campaign and settle for the area west of the Jordan. Now, the tribes then responded with a pledge to help. They said, we would like to build pens for our livestock and cities for our, our women and children, but we will arm ourselves for battle and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Now, here's a question. Here Moses says that God will free these guys from their obligation. But we also know that this isn't God's best choice that they should do this. So how can we reconcile those two statements? We've talked in the past about the two wills of God. His perfect will, which is always the best, and then his permissive will, which is defined as things God will allow because of our choices. Now, we have to be careful here. When I say God's permissive will, it involves choices that aren't inherently sinful, but still fall short of God's best for us. God never has a permissive will in things like adultery and drunkenness. But in some things, as seen in our case here, he allows it, but it was still a grave mistake. In fact, history proves this out. These two and a half tribes were the first group to break fellowship with the nation of Israel. And history records that although this land was beautiful and a great place for livestock, they were also easy prey for their enemies. And these tribes were the first ones to fall to the Assyrians. They became the paganized part of the people of Israel. Listen to this account in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, even the spirit of Tilgath Pilsner, king of Assyria, and he carried them away into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, 
and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala, Habar, Hera, and to the river of Gozan to this day. We find another interesting, although disturbing, byproduct of the decision to not cross into the promised land in the New Testament. See if you recognize this. Jesus and his disciples had just gone through a storm so terrifying that the disciples, who although they were experienced fishermen, thought they were going to die in the storm. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they found themselves in another difficult place, at a cemetery surrounded by pigs. Jesus comes to a place called Gadara and finds a demon-possessed man there living among the tombs. It may interest you to know that the descendants of these people were from Gad. That's where we get Gadara. Now, it was not only unclean due to the pigs, but it was unsafe because of a demon-possessed man that lived there. What do you want? screamed the demons. Jesus wanted what he always wants. He wanted the man to come back. Now, remember, the tribe of Gad didn't want to enter the promised land because why? They had all kinds of cattle. But what animal does Jesus cast the demons into? Was it cattle? No, it was pigs. An unclean animal that no self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but do you know what you call a pig that is possessed by a demon? Deviled ham. I'm sorry, but I can never pass that up. But uh, seriously, we know that the pigs ran down an embankment and drowned themselves in the sea, which, of course, is a clear case of suicide. You can groan all you want, but if I'm at lunch today and choke to death on a chicken bone, I want to enter glory knowing I got that punchline in one final time. But do you see the incredible sad thing here? There on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, there was a thriving pig industry. But pigs were forbidden by the law of God. Why did these people tell Jesus to go back to the west side of the Jordan from where he came? Because they were from the tribe of Gad, or as it was known in Mark chapter 5, the city of Gadara. So Reuben and Gad made a monumental mistake by choosing a place of comfort rather than a place of commitment, by opting for affluence instead of obedience. This land is good for our cattle and our families, they initially said. And yet by the time that Jesus walked among their land, there was not a cow in sight. Listen, if you want your cattle to do well, Take them into the promised land with you. Otherwise, they'll turn into pigs. And if you want your kids to do well, take them with you. Otherwise, they will be those who prefer that Jesus depart from their area. The tribe of Gad went from raising cattle to raising pigs. And shortly after that, the men came and asked Jesus to leave their shore. Why? Because they were more concerned about pigs than they were about people. They used to be comfortable raising cattle, and now they're comfortable raising pigs 
and Jesus had just upset their routine. By the way, when we make sinful choices, the things we thought that we would attain begin to degrade, and we end up with something entirely different than we initially had hoped for. But perhaps the greatest of all the areas of compromise is when we decide to separate ourselves from the flock of God and instead choose to live at a distance. If you've ever watched those nature shows, who does the lion or the cheetah always go after? It's always the one who has wandered away from the flock. It's always the one who is now at a distance from the flock. What is true of a zebra is also true of a Christian. Listen to how Peter describes our adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why is it important to come to church and stay in Christian fellowship? Because your enemy will always watch for those who stray away, and then he will ruthlessly find them and attack them. There is a protection afforded to those who make gathering with the saints a priority in their life. I don't know how it works, but the principle is evident all throughout the Scripture. I don't know, understand the, all the mechanics of it, but I've seen the fallout of not doing it over the years. I've seen it countless times over the last 28 years I've spent in church. You see people starting to come less and less, and then one day you find that they've returned back into the ways of the world. And now you have a prodigal situation. And it often starts with only one tiny compromise. I read a story this week about a man in Haiti who wanted to sell his home. One prospective buyer wanted to buy it, but he was too poor. He couldn't afford the asking price. But after much bargaining, the owner agreed to cut the cost of the house in half if he could just have one stipulation. For sentimental reasons, he would retain ownership of one small nail protruding over the front door. Well, several years later, the original owner of the house decided that he wanted to buy it back, but the new owner now was unwilling to sell it. So the first owner went out, and he found a dead dog. And bringing it to the house, he hung the carcass on that nail that he still owned over the front door. And as you can imagine, soon the stench from the decaying carcass permeated the house, making it unlivable. The family living there was finally forced to sell the house back to the owner, all because of that one nail. Just because they allowed the original owner one small nail. My friends, as Christians, we have to be very careful that we don't have a nail in our life that the enemy can hang dead things on. The only way for us to be truly free from the dominion of sin is to have the remains of that sin removed and destroyed. But as long as we have that nail of compromise hanging around, the stench of sin is never too far away. 
So in closing, it's been said that many Christians sow their wild oats, and then they spend the rest of their lives praying for a crop failure. But let us make Psalm 119 our continual prayer this morning. It says, Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. Now listen to this. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in the Lord's paths. And, Father, that is our prayer this morning. It is so easy to fall into a life of compromise. We have voices coming from everywhere, always offering us a different way. But like in the garden, Lord, we know that we have to listen to your voice and not the enemy's. I pray you would just give us discernment, Lord, and let us once again devote ourselves wholeheartedly towards following you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.